0: what's out there right now, keeping us moving forward, keeping this community together. So thank you for everyone who supported and everyone who's to support. We appreciate it.
1: North Crocker Mountain in Maine stands at a lofty 4,168 feet above sea level. It is the fourth highest mountain in the state, but despite its imposing vertical presence, the mountain lacks the spectacular views that the taller mountains boast. A dense mat of spruce and balsam fir trees cloak the summit, rendering off-trail travel nearly impossible, unless you want to thrash gear or have an eye displaced by a spindly branch. At one point, someone eked out a short spur trail to an opening in the thick boreal forest that offers a limited view to the west. Needless to say... North Crocker is in most people's top pick to be the last of the 67 4,000 footers they climb in New England. In the summer of 2019, my wife Jen and three friends join me on a four-day backpack on one of the most difficult sections of the Appalachian Trail. Hiking trails in Maine are a different breed, as are the mosquitoes. Erosion has washed away most of the soil, exposing roots and rocks and turning the trail into an obstacle course, prime for rolling an ankle or tweaking a knee. By the afternoon on our last day, we had climbed seven other 4,000-foot mountains, including Saddleback, Spalding, and Abraham, and we were sporting the pus-filled blisters to prove it. These peaks offered unsurpassed views of Maine's Carabassa Valley and were a fitting reward for the pain we endured. Now, North Crocker was all that stood in our way from finishing. Throughout the backpacking trip, we'd stuck together as a group. But as we approached North Crocker, I found myself hiking on my own. Two of my friends had sped up the trail, and Jen and another friend tailed not far behind me. I relished this separation, as I wanted more time to dive deep inside myself. To think and patiently wait for any self-reflections to bubble up. In a world full of never-ending commotion, my best place for introspection is deep in the woods. i come a long way to get to this summit, and I wanted the time and space to appreciate my journey. My endeavor to hike New England's 67 4,000-foot mountains began in 2009 that spring, I needed some time to think about my life's direction. I left my career as a graphic designer to work in the White Mountains of New Hampshire as a backcountry campsite caretaker on the AT. In my free time, I explored the forest verdant valleys and rugged summits and ticked off 15 peaks by the end of the season. In spring 2010, with plans to return to my backcountry job for a second year, I met Jen at a bar in the suburbs of Boston. I couldn't believe I met someone who also loved the White Mountains at a place that blared dance music and reeked of perfume. The following day, I returned to the mountains for work, but wrote letters to Jen once or twice a week. After a few months, we planned our first date to climb Mount Washington, New England's highest peak. As Jen and I fell in love, hiking strengthened our bond. I continued to send her letters while she lived and worked in the Boston area. She drove three hours to the Whites every weekend, where we chipped away at my 4,000-footer list and Jen's list that she started with our trip up Washington. After the summer field season, I three-hiked Vermont's long trail with a buddy in the fall, tagging five 4,000-footers along the way. Jen joined us around the halfway mark for a weekend backpack over Killington and Pico. On New Year's Eve 2012, I proposed to Jen next to a frozen waterfall in the middle of the wilderness. We were married in the mountains later that spring. Jen and I threw hiked the John Muir Trail, vacationed in national parks and forests across the country, and backcountry skied in the White Mountains. By the winter of 2017, I was eight mountains shy of my 4,000 footer goal. Jen and I decided we could finish the list on one summer backpacking trip. I could taste victory. That February, I took a ski trip to Tuckerman Ravine and stayed with Jen's parents in New Hampshire. Jen had to be in Boston that weekend. On Saturday, I awoke to bluebird skies, brilliant sunshine, and a half foot of new snow, but something wasn't right. A twinge on the right side of my groin made it hard to walk. I thought I could ski it off, so I inhaled oatmeal and coffee and drove up to the trailhead. Stubbornly, I began skinning up the trail to the ravine ignoring my body's red flags. After two miles, the ache I felt in the morning turned into a throbbing pain radiating from my abdomen to my groin. I stopped at a backcountry cabin to rest. I tolerated pain before, but this was unlike anything I'd ever felt. At that moment, as I sat in the cold, unoccupied cabin, I realized I had to self-rescue and fast. I gingerly skied back to my car, trying not to exasperate the pain shooting through my torso. As I drove back to my in-laws, I told myself this was one hell of a kidney stone. My in-laws drove me to the hospital and called Jen. Soon, I was lying on a bed in the emergency department, still wearing my base layers and ski socks underneath a johnny gown, hooked up to an IV of pain meds. I smelled cleaning solvents wafting in the air and heard instruments beeping and buzzing around me. I was far from the crisp mountain air and tranquility of the woods. This was terrifyingly familiar. In 2010, just two months before I met Jen, I was diagnosed with stage one testicular cancer. After surgery to remove the tumor, my oncologist told me that I was cancer-free. The medical scare did little to slow me down and I was back in the White Mountains a month after surgery, working, pursuing my hiking goals, and building a relationship with Jen. Every month, I drove from the mountains to Boston for blood work, x-rays, and a CAT scan to ensure the cancer did not recur. I would then returned to the Whites as fast as possible to cleanse myself of the medical reality I just faced. Nature was my therapist in remission. After five years, my doctor cleared me of needing any more tests or visits. I left the hospital rejoicing and grateful for the new cancer-free life that I could go on to live with Jen. Now, as I waited for results that cold February day, almost exactly seven years after my initial diagnosis, I struggled to block the traumatic flashbacks. I desperately wanted to escape to the woods. After an agonizing hour and a half, the doctor returned and asked my in-laws if he could talk to them in private. As they left the room, tears began to stream down my face. I fiddled with a zipper on my long sleeve base layer and thought about how I should have been skiing right now. A knot in my stomach tightened. The doctor and my in-laws returned and huddled beside me. He informed me that the scan showed a mass in my abdomen and from these results he was certain it was not the kidney stone I was hoping for. He recommended that I return to Boston and follow up with my oncologist for more tests. My heart sank and I closed my eyes. When I opened them, I saw my in-laws gazing at me sympathetically. My mother-in-law told me to remember all the mountains I climbed. Even though we didn't know the size of the mountain ahead, she was confident I'd summit this one too. I hugged both of them and wept. The ensuing days blurred with appointments, blood tests, biopsies, and CAT scans at two Boston hospitals. A week later, doctors told me the mass was stage 3 testicular cancer that spread to my abdomen. How could this happen to me? Again. I started chemotherapy. Each round consisted of five eight-hour days in the infusion clinic, followed by two and a half weeks of recovery. The days in the clinic were as mentally taxing as they were physically. I visualized the treatment as a controlled burn of the cancer in my body, similar to how forests and grasslands are intentionally set on fire to stimulate new growth. I could only walk from my infusion chair to a bathroom with my IV coat rack in tow. When I had the strength, Jen and I would go for short walks at a park near the clinic. My stress released as soon as I stepped out of the car into the forest air. While walking the trails, I focused on my breathing. I'd mindfully breathe in peace and breathe out stress. I thought the mountains were the only places for respite, but I was wrong. Knees often overlooked town parks not far from my house I received the same, if not more, solace. After three rounds of chemo and a major 11 hour surgery to remove the remaining tumor and many lymph nodes, I completed my treatment. It would be days until I could stand up straight, weeks until I could walk from one end of my house to the other, and months until I could hobble hunched over around my block. Jen stayed beside me through it all, praying and cheering hard when hope seemed out of reach. The light she brought me shone brighter than the sun. Our years of adventuring outdoors together played a big part in getting us through those difficult times. We learned how to compose ourselves in vulnerable moments and when we were beyond our comfort zones. We knew if one fell, the other would be there to help them up. It wasn't until this medical nightmare that our wedding vow to support each other in sickness and in health meant so much to both of us. When doctors first told me the disease had returned, I felt as if I was on a viewless summit, unable to see where I was going in life. I felt alone and terrified. Destructive thoughts poisoned my mind, usually late at night when I was exhausted and defenseless. These unwelcome thoughts try to tear me down and make me believe that I'd never hike another mountain again. Thoughts flitted in and out of my mind as I walked in solitude. No surprise, the first thing that popped in my head was how soon it would be until I could eat a burger. I daydreamed of a cold beer and a real pillow to sleep on at night. I kept hiking, gradually sinking into the sounds around me, my footsteps clamoring on the uneven ground, a breeze sweeping through the fir needles, a chickadee calling in the distance. As I tuned into the soft sounds, my mind quieted, too. In the rare stillness, I began to feel the memories and emotions stir like the soft wind through the trees. I was grateful for this moment, and I reflected on the doctors, nurses, family, and friends who supported me throughout my treatment and recovery. I heard footsteps and the sound of hiking poles pinging off rocks behind me. It was Jen. I could taste salt on my lips. A couple of tears of joy ran down my sweaty cheeks, but I didn't care. She had seen me looking much worse than this before. I remember the first time I broke down in front of her, crying in a fit of rage after I'd been diagnosed for a second time. Instead of thinking I was weak, she said she admired my ability to cry and to release emotion. It will prevent you from burying these painful memories that you'll have to deal with later, she noted. I'll never forget that advice she walked up to me sipping her water bottle and asked how i was doing great i said just trying to take this all in you should she replied you deserve it we hiked in tandem the last rocky wooden mile to north Crocker's summit the trail steepened but never became unbearable the hard work was behind us a ring of balsam fir and red spruce trees encircled the top the lush forest engulfed me with a cleansing aroma of conifer resin and the sun dried my tears. Though I couldn't see the sprawling landscape below, I was far from disappointed when I touched North Crocker's wooden summit sign. Two years after my treatment, it was the deeply satisfying view of myself on the inside that mattered the most. The view was better than anything I'd ever seen. And the best part, I could take this new perspective with me wherever I went. I gave Jen a salty kiss, hugged my friends, And spent a couple minutes reveling in my accomplishment. Before long, we all agreed that our growling bellies meant we should begin the long descent to the car. Burgers and beers called. I'm Ryan Smith, and this is my short.
0: Thank you, Ryan, for sharing your story. Ryan and Jen are excited to keep chipping away at their hiking goals once quarantine is over. Music today from Jason Tyler Burton, Bradley Carter, Kai Engel, and Brendan O'Connell. The tracks are courtesy of the artists. Jacob Bain and Nis Koto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website, DirtbagDiaries.com. This episode was produced by Cordelia Zars and Becca Cahal. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you have been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.